From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. There may be no better way to celebrate spooky season than with a bit of Edgar Allan Poe. And there may be no better interpreter for his work in St. Louis than Anne Williams. For the last few years, the historical interpreter and local actor has performed Charles Dickens' classic work, A Christmas Carol, on this show. The radio broadcast of her recitation has become a local favorite. Now Williams has for us a performance of the perfect story for this pandemic. In 1842, Edgar Allan Poe published the short story, The Mask of the Red Death. It's a frightening tale that follows Prince Prospero and his attempts to avoid a plague called the Red Death. Along with a thousand wealthy nobles, the prince retreats to his abbey where no one is allowed in or out. Some months later, the prince throws a grand party and a mysterious stranger shows up. Production and sound design for the St. Louis on the Air exclusive are by Aaron Dorr. And without further delay, here's Ann Williams with The Mask of the Red Death. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal. The madness and horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body, and especially the face of the victim, were the pest ban which shut him out from the aid and the sympathy of his fellow men. The whole seizure, progress, and termination of the disease were incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions had been half depopulated, he summoned a thousand of his hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retreated to the deep seclusion of one of his crenellated abbeys. It was an extensive and magnificent structure of the prince's own eccentric yet august designs. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. The wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They had resolved to leave means neither of ingress or egress to the sudden impulse of frenzy or despair from within. The abbey was amply supplied. With these precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to the contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided for all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons, there were improvisatories, there were ballet dancers, there were musicians, there was beauty, and there was wine. All these in security were within. Without was the Red Death. It was towards the end of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion when the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand followers with a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. But first, let me tell you of the rooms in which it was held. There were seven, an imperial suite. In many palaces, however, such suites form long and straight vistas with folding doors which slide back nearly to the walls on either side so that the view of the whole extant is scarcely impeded. Here it was quite different, as might be expected from the prince's love of the bazaar. 
The apartments were irregularly disposed, so that the vision embraced but little more than one room at a time. There were sharp turns to the right and to the left. In the middle of each wall was a tall and narrow Gothic window, which opened out onto a closed corridor which pursued the windings of the suite. These Gothic windows were of stained glass, the color of which varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the room into which it opened. That of the eastern extremity were blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber had tapestries and ornaments of purple, and its panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and green were its casements. The fourth was hung in furnishing and lighting of orange, the fifth of white, and the sixth of violet. The seventh chamber was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries which hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds on a carpet of the same material and hue. In this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond to that of the decorations. The windows were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now in no room was there any lamp or candelabrum, but in the corridor which followed the suite there stood opposite each window a heavy tripod bearing a brazier of fire that projected its light through the tinted panes and so glaringly lit the room, and thus was produced the most gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western or black room... The effect of the firelight falling on the black hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme, and produced so odd a look upon the countenance of those who entered that few of the company were so bold as to set a foot within its precincts at all. In this apartment also, there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang. But when the minute hand had gone the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, the brazen lungs of the clock made a sound that were loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note and empathy, that at each hour the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to it, and the waltzers ceased their evolutions, and a brief disquiet fell upon the whole gay company. And while the chimes yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and the more aged and sedate among the group passed a hand over their brow as if in confused meditation or reverie. But when the echo of the last chime had ceased, a light laughter pervaded the assembly, and the musicians smiled at one another as if embarrassed by their own nervousness and folly, and whispered a vow each to the other that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. But then came the lapse of sixty minutes, and again came the chiming of the clock, and the same disquiet, tremulousness, and meditation. In spite of this, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The prince's tastes were peculiar. He had a fine eye for color and effect. He disregarded the decorum of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery. His conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There were some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt he was not. It was necessary to hear and to see and to touch him to be sure he was not. He had given direction in great part to the moving embellishments of the seven chambers on occasion of this great feat, and his own guiding taste had given character to the masqueraders. To be sure, they were grotesque. There was much glare and glitter and piquancy 
and phantasm. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies such as the madman fashions. There was much beauty. There was much wantonness. There was much of the bizarre. There was some of the terrible. And there was not a little of that which might have excited disgust. In and out through the seven chambers stalked a multitude of dreams. And these dreams writhed to and fro, taking on the hue of the rooms and causing the music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their footsteps. But anon there came a chiming of the clock of ebony in the hall of velvet. And for a moment all was still. All was silent, save for the voice of the clock. The dreams were stiff frozen where they stood. But when the chimes had ceased, they had endured but an instant. A light, half-subdued laughter floated after them as they departed, and the music swelled and the dreams lived and they writhed to and fro more merrily than ever, taking on the hue of the windows through which streamed the rays of the tripods. But in the room which lay westwardly of the seven, there now no masker dared venture, for the night had waned and a ruddier light flowed through the blood-tinted panes and the blackness of the draperies appalled. And to him whose foot fell upon the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal more solemnly emphatic than that which reached their ears who indulged in the remote gaiety of the other apartments. And these apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life, and the revel went whirlingly on. But at length there came a striking of midnight upon the clock of ebony, and the music ceased as I have said, and the evolution of the waltzers was quieted, and there was a cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes upon the bell of the clock, and as it happens, perhaps, more thought crept with more of time into the meditation of the more thoughtful among the group. And as it happens, there were some who found the leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure who had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And as the rumor of this presence went whisperingly around, there grew in a company a buzz, a murmur, of horror and of disgust. Now in an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be imagined that no ordinary figure would have excited such emotion. In truth, the masquerade license for the night was nearly unlimited. But the stranger had outherited Herod and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's own indefinite decorum. There are strings in the heart of the most restless which cannot be touched without emotion. Even to the utterly lost, for whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. But now the whole company seemed to feel deeply that in the stranger's costume and decorum neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that even the clever scrutiny would have had difficulty in discovering the cheat. And still all of this might have been tolerated, even applauded by the mad revelers but the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vestments were dabbled in blood, 
and his broad brow and all the features of his face besprinkled with the scarlet horror. When the eyes of Prince Prospero fell upon the spectral image, with a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers, he was seen to be convulsed in the first moment either through terror or disgust, but in the next his brow reddened with rage. Who dares, he demanded of the courtiers who stood about. Who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom it is we must hang in the morning from the battlements. It was in the eastern or blue room in which stood the Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had hushed with a wave at his hand. It was in the eastern or blue room where stood the prince, close beside a group of pale courtiers. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand, but now, with deliberate and stately steps, approached near to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole company, there were found none that put out a hand to seize him, so that he passed within a yard of the prince's person. And while the vast assembly, as if in one impulse, shrank from the centers of the room to the walls, he passed uninterruptedly, and with the same deliberate and stately steps which had distinguished him from the first, through the blue room, to the purple, through the purple room, to the green, through the green room, to the orange, through the orange room, to the white, and thence to the violet, ere a decided movement was made to arrest him. But then the Prince Prospero, maddened with rage and ashamed of his own momentary embarrassment, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, but there was found none to follow him. On account of the terror that had seized upon them all, he bore aloft a drawn dagger and moved with rapid impetuosity to within three or four feet of the retreating figure, when the latter, having attained the extremity of the western room, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry and the dagger dropped gleamingly upon the sable carpet, upon which an instant later fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of revelers threw themselves at once into the velvet room and seizing with violent rudeness upon the mummer who stood erect and still in the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and mask untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers and the blood-bedewed hall of their revels, and died each in the despairing posture in which he had fallen. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay, and the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness, and decay, and the red death held illimitable dominion over all.
That's the Mask of the Red Death, recited from memory by local historical interpreter and actor Ann Williams, with production and sound design by Aaron Dorr. The short story was first published by Edgar Allan Poe in 1842. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.